Well, we are now in the, uh, the final message of this series that we've titled, You Say You Want a Revolution. And that title, of course, came from uh, two unknowns named Paul McCartney and John Lennon. Um, 50 years ago this year, they wrote that song, It's Hard to Believe, um, a little obscure little band called The Beatles. And the first two lines of, of that song went, You Say You Want a Revolution. Well, you know, we all want to change the world. We all want to change the world. Revolution seems to be the spirit of our times. People around the world, here in the United States and, and all around the globe, are agitating for change, for, for revolutions political, uh, social, moral, spiritual. And yet, as we've been observing, uh, what we're really desperate for, no earthly revolution will ever produce. Our, our needs are far deeper than can be met by any human leader, by any uh, social political or economic system, our deepest needs, our deepest longings are for the rule of God in our world, in our individual lives. Whether we know that or not, right? I mean, our deepest longings are for the rule of God in our lives and in our world and for Jesus Christ to reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. So in this series, we've been taking a a deep look or deeper than normal look at a prayer that's familiar to most of us, a prayer that Jesus gave his disciples as a pattern for how they should pray. And it's become known as, somewhere along the line, the Lord's Prayer. Uh, And so we've been studying it line by line because the Lord's Prayer is a revolutionary prayer. And uh, for those who take the time to understand it deeply and then to use it consistently as a pattern for their own praying, and then to live it, I, I, I think you can't help but experience a revolution in your relationship with God as your heavenly father, in your worship, in the priorities of your life, in your allegiances, in your service, and, and in your confidence in God's provision for you in your life, as well as in your personal relationships, and probably a whole bunch more than that. Revolutionary. So let's stand together and read our scripture this morning. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is God's word. You may be seated. This morning we're going to deal with that last line, that final petition in verse 13, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's bow together in prayer as we move into God's word together. Lord, would you now come and be our teacher by your spirit, Lord, open the eyes of our hearts, the ears of our hearts, that we would see and hear and receive what it is your spirit wants to say to us this morning. And I pray again, as I frequently pray, Lord, would you do that thing that only you can do? And that is to take uh, one simple message from the word and apply it in each of our lives according to our distinct and unique needs. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. So this final petition, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, is a prayer for, first of all, shepherding, 
and then for deliverance, for shepherding and for deliverance. Lead us, lead us, deliver us, literally rescue us. And as we're going to see, it's, uh, it's, this prayer is in fact a prayer of desperation. Lord, rescue us, rescue us from sin, rescue us from ourselves, rescue us from the evil one. So let's begin with that first phrase, and lead us not into temptation. It's an interesting petition, even, even an alarming one, because it seems at first blush, at least to imply, the possibility that God himself might, could, would, lead us personally into circumstances in which we would be enticed or provoked to sin. And that certainly is not the case because if that were true, that would make God complicit in the sin for which he would then judge us. Get that? That scenario, and this has kind of been also a theme in this because we began with our heavenly father or our father in heaven, uh, the scenario would put God in the same category as the sick, abusive father who intentionally puts his children in dangerous circumstances, laughs at them when they're injured, and then holds them personally accountable and responsible for their injuries. I mean, how sick is that? So Jesus wants us to understand something about God here in this prayer, right at the outset. We sang it earlier in that new song that that the band taught us. God is for me, not against me. God is for me, not against me. In James 1, verse 13, James picks up this theme. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Notice those, those two things. God cannot be tempted. He himself cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. He's neither tempted nor the tempter. So God will never tempt us in order to cause us to fail or to fall. God is not a God who sets up his children for failure. He takes no delight in our sin. He takes no delight in our failure. Sometimes we may feel that way. We may see, we may say, God, are you laughing? Are you enjoying this? But God will never tempt us in order to cause us to fail. Never. And by the way, that's the goal of temptation. If there is a goal of temptation, it's that, to cause the the one who is being tempted to fall. That's the goal. So so you and I cannot, instead of saying, as Flip Wilson used to say, the devil made me do it, we can't say God made me do it. On the contrary, David wrote in Psalm 23, and if you know a psalm, you probably know this one, Verse 3, he leads me in pathways that are righteous for the sake of his name. 
Now think about that for just a moment. That, we talked about the word righteousness recently. At its most basic meaning, it's a relational term. It means to be in a right relationship with God. But it has to do with being right morally, more right ethically, right in our obedience, right in our own relationships. He leads me in pathways that are like that for the sake of his name. In other words, as we live righteous lives, he gets glory. His name gets exalted. So temptation will never have its source in God. On the contrary, temptation comes externally from Satan and from other sinners. From Satan and from other sinners. The the New Testament refers to Satan as the tempter. Uh, Jesus called him a liar and the father of lies. Uh, if, if Satan's lips are moving, he's lying. He can't help himself. He, he is a deceiver from the word go. And he uses people, he even uses you, as agents of temptation and seduction. Remember that that. It, verse from the Proverbs that everybody attributes to Ben Franklin, bad company corrupts good morals. My favorite band back in the 70s was called Bad Company. (laughs) So he uses, you know, Satan's a temper. He uses people as agents of temptation and seduction. Where else does temptation come from? Well, temptation comes internally from ourselves, from ourselves. That's kind of that oh crud moment, right? I mean, I, me, I'm the source, yep. Ourselves, our little old selves, our pitiful, pathetic selves. James, again, verses 13 to 15, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Substitute for desire, the word passion or lust. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now check out verse 14 there. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. There's a lot of truth in that old line, lead us not into temptation, we can find it ourselves just fine, thank you very much. Right? There are two words there, lured and enticed. Lured is is a metaphor taken from the world of hunting and fishing. It means to, to draw out or to draw away. And the word paints a picture of a game animal, for example, a, a deer or a fish being lured from its protective cover. Deer are protected when they're in the woods. But if you can get them out to the edge of the woods or you can get them into a, a, a break in the woods, a meadow, for example, they become vulnerable to a hunter. Bass 
love to hang out underneath docks and underneath logs and fallen trees. That's where you fish. That's why you lose a lot of bass lures. But boy, if you, if you dangle that, that lure in just the right way, it'll erupt out of that cover and it becomes vulnerable and it gets hooked. In the same way, this word describes a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, you and I, being drawn out from safety to sin. It may be the safe safety of simple self-restraint. It may be the safety of parental protection. It may be the, the safety of accountable relationships in a small group. But the picture remains the same, that we are drawn out of protection. And then the next word comes into, into play, the word enticed, which means to bait a hook <laughs> or to set a trap with bait with the goal of getting the prey to not only come out from, from whatever protection it was hiding in, but then to take the next fatal step and be trapped, to be snared, or to be killed. So for you and I to be lured and enticed means to be drawn into a moral and spiritual trap by pursuing our own selfish impulses and appetites. And you're looking at something or you're looking at someone or you're looking at an experience or you're looking at something that you want to spend money you don't have on and you're going, well, that looks awfully good. Or he or she looks awfully good. What could it hurt? What could it hurt? Fatal, fatal little thought right there. What could it hurt? And we get trapped. And it results in death. Notice the, the anatomical description of the process of temptation in verse 15. I was going to use the word gynecological, but that's not a good word to use in a sermon, so I won't use it. <laughs> verse 15, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So desire, passion, has a conception and there's a birth that results in sin and then sin grows up and sin creates death. So God will not tempt us to sin, but God will do this. God will test us in order to reveal our true condition and strengthen our faith. I had an experience this week uh, that revealed my true condition. I, I worked in the yard from a, early in the morning till late. The, the bats were flying, the skeeters were biting, it was late. And, and I came in and I was, I, I shouldn't have done that, right? I just hadn't done that in a while, shouldn't have done that. God will test us in order to reveal our true condition. And sometimes it's a matter of not revealing it to him. He knows where we're at, where we're not at. It, it, it gets revealed to us. 
how we're actually doing when when the test comes and and then having revealed that true condition to strengthen our faith those greek words that are translated temptation and testing in the new testament are in fact the same word they're the same word the context in which the word appears determines how it's used in one case it's temptation in another place it's testing. As we saw earlier, temptations are brought to us in order to cause us to fail and to fall. That's the goal of temptation. Testing, on the other hand, is about helping us to grow. Satan perpetrates temptation in our lives. We, We perpetrate temptation in our own lives to the end that we are seduced and destroyed, seduced and defeated, seduced and and broken. Christ permits tests and trials in our lives to help us grow. James 1, this is a big theme in the, in the book of James. James 1, 2 to 4, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. He didn't say count it all happiness. He didn't say count it all convenience or comfort. It says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know this, that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. There's a growth factor that comes from testing. First Peter 4, verses 12 and 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Jesus said, if, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. They persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. In this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Trial for the Christian is what life is going to be about. The moment you trusted in Christ, Satan got you in his crosshairs. You stepped into a a war zone. I watched a movie several years ago, uh, Enemy at the Gates. It was about the Battle of Stalingrad. And and, and the beginning of the movie, uh, I think it was Jude Law that that was the main character in this, and Ed Harris. But Jude Law is a a Russian soldier, and he's he's in a freight train with a whole bunch of other soldiers, and they... and. And they, they're just, you know, tooling along, they're rumbling along, the scene is inside the car. But all of a sudden, the door flies open, the train comes to a stop, the door comes open, and they are in a war zone, bullets are flying everywhere. And I thought, what a great picture of what it means to, to become a Christian. <laughs> because all of a sudden, you're in a hostile zone, in one sense of the word. First Peter, I'm getting off track here. First Peter 1, 6, and 7. For a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Notice that word grieved. It isn't fun, is it? I mean, trials, trials are trials. You've heard me describe the, 
the old black pastor that says, when, when God brings you tribulation, he intends for you to tribulate. That, that's, that's, that's what he wants you to do. You've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. By the way, the, re- the way I read that, and I studied that this week, the, the structure there, the praise and glory and honor seems to be yours. That you receive praise, that you receive uh, glory, that you receive honor when Christ is re- revealed because you stood the test. Well done, good and faithful servant. Jesus wants us, I think, to understand from this little prayer something about growth. That growth requires trial. In the same way that developing muscle requires pressure and tension. Anyone who's ever participated in any sport knows that that is true. Refinement of gold requires intense heat. You and I will never grow up without experiences and pressures that are uncomfortable on some level, usually several levels. And we know that as parents, don't we? I mean, as parents, we want our kids to grow up and so we don't raise them in a bubble of protection where they're, they're constantly protected we progressively allow them more difficult experiences, increasingly more difficult. Why? Because we want them to mature so that they'll move out someday. <laughs> right? And hopefully. And, and do that successfully so that they don't have to come back. We want them to grow up. second half of this petition is, but deliver us from the evil one. The language that Jesus used did not point to evil as an abstract principle in this case, but as an actual person. Evil, at its most basic definition, refers to that which causes pain, causes sorrow, causes misery, causes malignant wickedness. But Jesus isn't here dealing with a textbook minimal definition. He's not dealing with a mere moral or ethical principle. He's not referring to an impersonal power like the dark side of the force. He's not talking about evil in the abstract. He's referring to the embodiment of evil in a specific malevolent person. How do we know that? Jesus used a the mat, personal masculine noun here, poneros, to point to a particular person, Satan, the evil one. The definite article is there, the evil one. So the deliverance that Jesus has in mind is a rescue mission. A rescue mission. If this is confusing to you, and you, you would say, well, I don't have a sense of need to be rescued. <laughs> Check this out from a spiritually mature person, the Apostle Paul. And see if you can just relate to or resonate with anything that he says here. 
in Romans chapter 7. He says, I do not understand my own actions. You with him yet? I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Are you with him yet? Some of you are liars looking spiritually smug. For, just hang in, hang in, I'll, I'll get to you. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law, a law, that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death, or this body controlled by death, this body that's leading to death, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The answer to the question of our wretchedness is the work of Christ on our behalf. Right? Amen. You guys resonate with any of that? Boy, when when he comes to that theme of You know, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. I say, yeah, I I love the word of God. I love the Lord. But in my daily life, man, I struggle because of this thing that goes on within me, this tug of war that's always going on in my heart. And Paul said, that produces a sense of absolute wretchedness. And he asked the question, who... Who will deliver me? And the answer is Jesus. The answer is Jesus. When God delivers us from the evil one, he delivers us to himself and for himself. In that word deliverance are those two concepts, are those two ideas. He delivers us to himself and for himself. The verse that captures that best for me is Colossians 1, 13 and 14, where Paul wrote, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. So he's, he's rescued us from the domain of darkness and he transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. I get transferred in my citizenship from one kingdom to another. The kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He delivers us delivers us, first of all, then he delivers us to himself and for himself. Two thoughts there. One, he wants us. He wants us. And two, he's glorified as he does that work of redemption and forgiveness in our, in our lives. It's this truth that Paul was reflecting when he wrote to the Corinthian believers in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20, you are not your own. 
You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. He delivered delivered you to himself for himself. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. The answer is, what do I do now? Glorify God. That's what my life is now about. See, Jesus wants us to understand finally something about grace in this little prayer. In Hebrews 2, 14 to 15, we read this, that because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. Merry Christmas. Right? He became flesh and blood. He, he became incarnate in human flesh. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Happy Easter. Right? Happy Easter. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. How many, do you know, how many people do you know like that? They're slaves to the fear of dying. See, and when we come to understand the grace of God in Jesus Christ, one of the things that that goes progressively away is the fear of dying. Because I pass from death to life, eternal life. Finally, as we saw some time back, We are not fighting this battle for victory, but from victory. We're not fighting it for victory, but from victory. Christ has already won the battle. He's already delivered us from the evil one. Satan's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, Jesus said. He, he, he's a roaring lion, but he's toothless in many senses. Because the, the victory in the battle is in our rearview mirror. It happened at the cross, and it happened once and for all at the cross. And so Satan's not happy, and he's going to take some of us, you know, wants to take some of us out. Sometimes he does that. But we don't battle for victory. Christ already won that. We battle from victory. Ephesians 6 verse 12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, I've never fully understood all that that means, but, but what I think it means is that he's talking about forces, spiritual forces that are arrayed against us millions of them, that are aligned with Satan. And we struggle against them in this life. And we say, why why is it so hard to live the Christian life? It's because we have an enemy. We 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 have battalions of enemies that are coming against us. Finally, Paul in his letter to the Colossian Christians, he says, you who were dead in your trespasses, and that describes, that described you before you were in Christ, It describes everyone who is separate from Christ today, spiritually dead, you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us, what's the word? 
all our trespasses. Say it again, all our trespasses, all of them. Forgave us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. All of the action took place through the cross and the empty tomb. The death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, the glorification of Jesus, that's where the battle was won. And because that took place, you and I stand in grace. Deliver us from the evil one. God says, got that box checked. You are delivered. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. O wretched people that we are, who will deliver us from this body that's controlled by death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning for your word. Thank you for the privilege that we have each week of being in the word together. Lord, I pray for our life groups as they will be meeting some of them this week to study this further. And Lord, I pray that uh, you would continue to teach them and extend this teaching uh, in their lives, in the life of their group. Uh, Lord, uh, thank you for this prayer that you taught your disciples to pray. And Lord, would you continue to use it, use it to cause us uh, to grow and to experience a revolution in our relationship with you, our relationship with others, our relationship with ourselves. And in our productivity in the kingdom of God, we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.